This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to a special edition of Radio Parallax. The show is being created specifically so that the good people at KZFR and Chico can enjoy some Radio Parallax on this Monday. We presume over the next several Mondays, the station will be able to excerpt our programming from the prior week. We used to like to start off the programs with quips of the day or quotes and quotes or quips. The week recently had four pretty good ones. You can choose whether to call them quotes or quips. I guess we can help with that. The first one ought to be a quote. This comes from Isaac Asimov, who once said, The saddest aspect of life right now, referring to the 80s, is that science gathers knowledge faster than society gathers wisdom. The magazine also quoted former Estee Lauder CEO Leonard Lauder, who said, There are two things that can destroy a family business. The family and the business. A statistician named Klaus Moser was quoted as saying, Education costs money, but then so does ignorance. And finally, one from that perennial favorite of ours, playwright Wilson Misner, who once said, The amount of sleep required by the average person is five minutes more. And we like citing good news items whenever possible, and and we, we have one from last week that I think deserves some attention. It is the good news that the banning of gill nets has led to an increase in the porpoise population in Northern California. Article in the East Bay Times last week notes that in the 80s and 90s was a grim trend off of Northern California coastline where hundreds of harbor porpoises, which are shy marine mammals that look like small dolphins, were killed every year in huge gill nets used by commercial fishermen. The animals were washed up dead on beaches after becoming tangled in the nets, which stretched up for half a mile underwater. After public outcry and threats of lawsuits from environmental groups, state officials banned gill nets in nearly all Northern California waters near the shoreline. And as a result, we're seeing a dramatic jump in the number of harbor porpoises. Their populations have more than doubled since the late 80s off Monterey Bay, San Francisco, and the Sonoma Coast in what scientists are calling an inspiring example of nature's resilience. These marine mammals have increased sevenfold in the Morro Bay area, and porpoises have now repopulated San Francisco Bay inside the Golden Gate. I was kayaking in that area near uh, Fort Mason a year or two ago and and noticed a bunch of these, and and, and that must have been what they were. They were small porpoises. So yeah, I guess I've seen it myself. They're back. Good. The story here is based on the fact that California voters, back in 1990, passed Proposition 132. This banned the use of gill nets and trammel nets, a similar type of fishing gear, starting in 1994. In 1989, state fish and game officials had prohibited them from San Francisco to the Sonoma coast, and after several high-profile deaths of endangered sea otters and threats of lawsuits from environmental groups, the state extended the ban to Monterey Bay and Morro Bay starting in 2003. That affected about a dozen commercial fishermen who used the nets to catch halibut, sea bass, and other species. Well, I guess there's a trade-off there. You may have to pay more for your fish, and the fishermen may have to go out deeper into the ocean, but seems like a good deal to us. A couple of weeks ago on the show, we had fun with some, uh, some lighthearted items, including some dumb crook summaries. 
And I have something in my hand here that's a little less amusing. It's, it's more like bad behavior among prominent people, but I think they're worth a minute or two. It turns out that the fate of the Hohenzollern clan, which used to be the royalty in Germany, I guess they've become a bit of a political hot potato in Germany. George Friedrich, who's the litigation-obsessed, in quotes, prince of Prussia and great-great-grandson of the last Kaiser, has launched multiple court cases insisting that federal and state governments give back the family's ancestral loot. The 44-year-old aristocrat is demanding the return of thousands of artifacts now displayed in museums, including paintings, sculptures, and furniture, as well as restitution for properties appropriated by the Soviets in what became East Germany. All told, his claim runs to hundreds of millions of dollars. For years, the German authorities quietly negotiated with the prince, but when he went public last year with a demand that he be handed an imperial crown and scepter and the deed to the Cieslenhof Palace in Potsdam, there was some public outrage. It's noted that the prince's great-grandfather was an early and outspoken supporter of Hitler, so the German courts could judge the family unworthy of restitution. (laughs) Gee, you think? And over in India, which is currently being ruled by a Hindu nationalist BJP party, Things are, things are going in the wrong direction. The members of the BJP are demanding that police arrest Netflix executives over a miniseries which shows a kiss between a Hindu woman and a Muslim man in front of a Hindu temple. A series titled A Suitable Boy is based on Vikram Seth's 1993 coming-of-age novel, and it led to a BJP member and home minister in the Madhya Pradesh state filing a complaint because the show, quote, has extremely objectionable content, unquote. The criminal complaint names two Netflix indie executives who were found guilty of intentionally hurting, quote, religious feelings, unquote, could be sentenced up to three years in prison. Man. And, you know, I have a little bit of a, a, a surprising personal note to add to this. Well, Mr. McMillan does anyway. When he was in India, he was part of a band that was named Unsuitable Boys, in reference to the same Vikram Seth book, apparently. We never kissed anybody in front of a temple. Not even a calmly little Hindu lass. No comment. And we like doing science items, and uh, one that's captured my attention is the fact that they seem convinced at this point, scientists do, that there's water all over the place on the moon. Which means if we go there, we can have something to drink and something to make oxygen from, which would be good. What's funny to me about this is that it's taken decades and decades to figure this out. When the Apollo astronauts brought back lots and lots of moon rocks, they were judged to be extraordinarily dry, leading people to conclude, scientists to conclude for for a long time, that there was just, there was simply no water up there. Well, it turns out they were wrong. Funny how science is. I know, Mr. Miller, they did not land in the dry season. By the way, we hope you took a look at that, uh, that lander that the Chinese uh, put down on the lunar surface. There's a cute, uh, kind of an engaging little video they have of it, uh, uh, of making that pit stop on the moon. We think that by the time you're hearing this, that the Chinese should have been able to bring back some of those moon rocks. But we are recording this a little bit early, so we don't know yet. But we hope so. That's, that's kind of cool. Something else that we think is kind of cool is... This item, which appeared on AaronHuertas.Medium.com, which was that, no, Donald Trump does not represent half the country. Mr. Huertas opined that despite losing a major presidential election, conservatives are urging liberals to earnestly listen to half the country that voted for Trump. But are we really talking about half the country, asks the author. There are 331 million people in America. 
So half the country is 165 million people. Did either candidate win support from half the country? No. No presidential candidate has ever received support from more than 50% of the population. Trump received 74 million votes, about 22% of the country. Biden has received 81 million votes, about 24% of the country. So Trump voters constitute a little more than one-fifth of the country, while Biden's are a little less than one-fourth. Now, admittedly, not everybody in the country is eligible to vote. You have to be 18 years of age. You know, I don't know what the figures are on how many of the possible voters in America did cast their ballots on Election Day last month. Numbers around 80% are being thrown around, which, as far as I know, might make it the highest voter turnout since the 19th century. But I guess we'll have to wait the final tally on that uh, in the weeks to come. Mr. Huerta did point out, though, that when he ran in the primaries back in 2016, the total number of Trump primary voters was just 14 million. He also notes that the ratings that Fox News gets is three and a half million people. And of course, Fox has somewhat parted ways with Trump to a degree. If you tally up the number of people that attended Trump rallies, it's a couple million, maybe, but only that. So I guess we should keep in mind that they are a rather small minority, a vocal small minority, but, but a small minority. One thing that strikes me about conventional wisdom at the moment is that it's widely believed this country has never been more divided, or that, you know, we're as divided as we've ever been, or, or that we're, you know, it, it's just, excepting maybe the Civil War, we are certainly at a, a time of, of non-unification, I guess you'd say. And although that's certainly true, that the country is divided... If you are old enough to remember back to the time of the Vietnam War, and a a lot of you are, dear listeners, you will no doubt recall that the country was deeply divided then as it is now. We were told by a lot of people in positions of power that it was a necessary war. We had to be there. We were protecting the freedom of Southeast Asians and preventing the spread of communism throughout the entire region. And there were a vocal number of people. I don't know. I guess you'd say a minority. But I don't know. A substantial portion of the population was adamant that this war was wrong and had to stop. Richard Nixon liked to claim that a silent majority of people were with him and that they supported his actions, particularly those in Southeast Asia. But he never proved his case on that one. Admittedly, he did get reelected in a landslide, but if you remember that 1972 campaign, you will certainly recall that it was one of the dirtiest in American history. In fact, it was that campaign that led to Watergate, and subsequent to that, a realization that intelligence agencies in this country were, were, were out of control. Both the Central Intelligence Agency and FBI were actively spying on American citizens for the crime of opposing official government policy in Vietnam. Which brings me to the book I I made allusion to on last week's program, which I've not yet finished, but which I already can can agree with the review on the cover by Daniel Ellsberg, who said, astonishingly good, the best book I've ever read about either the anti-war movement or Hoover's FBI, a masterpiece. Indeed, it appears to be a masterpiece. The Burglary is a story about how anti-war activists decided that, well, the the suspicions that the FBI was spying upon the anti-war groups was, um, in their minds, more than a paranoid suspicion. But given that in 1970, 
that the operations of the Federal Bureau of Investigation were very hush-hush and that none of its files had ever seen the light of day except what came through official channels. A bunch of determined activists in, in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, decided that the only way around this was going to be to burglarize an FBI office and cart away the files which could then be reviewed, gone through, and subsequently leaked to the press if they found something of interest. They were pretty sure they would, and by God, they did. I think what I'd like to do is excerpt a bit from Betty Metzger's book, something we enjoy doing from time to time on this program, because, well, Betty's just more eloquent than I am. I'm going to go right to chapter one. In late 1970, William Davidon, a mild-mannered physics professor at Haverford College, that's in Philadelphia, privately asked a few people this question. What do you think of burglarizing an FBI office? Even in that time of passionate resistance against the war in Vietnam that included break-ins at draft boards, his question was startling. What besides arrests and lengthy prison sentences would result from breaking into an FBI office? The Bureau and its legendary director, J. Edgar Hoover, have been revered by Americans and considered paragons of integrity for the nearly half-century he had been directed. Who would dare to think they could break into an FBI office? Surely the office of the most powerful law enforcement agency in the country would be as secure as Fort Knox. Just talking about the possibility seemed dangerous. But Davidon, with great reluctance, had decided that burglarizing an FBI office might be the only way to confront what he considered an emergency, the likelihood that the government, through the FBI, was spying on Americans and suppressing their cherished constitutional right to dissent. If that was true, he thought, it was a crime against democracy, a crime that must be stopped. The odds were very low that such an act of resistance could possibly succeed against the law enforcement agency headed by this man who held so much power. Nicholas Katzenbach, who as Attorney General was Hoover's boss, had resigned in 1966 because of Hoover's resentment over being told by Katzenbach to manage the Bureau within the law. The director's power was unique among all national officials, said Katzenbach. He ruled the FBI with a combination of discipline and fear and was capable of acting in an excessively arbitrary way. No one dared object. The FBI was a principality with absolutely secure borders, in Hoover's view. At the same time, he said, there was no man better known or more admired by the general public than J. Edgar Hoover. Such was the power and reputation of the official whose borders and files Davison was considering invading. He knew Hoover was very powerful, but he didn't know, nor could anyone outside the Bureau have known, how harshly he ruled it and how he protected the Bureau from having its illegal practices exposed. Katzenbach believed that Hoover, or one of the director's top aides, even forged his signature in order to make it appear that the Attorney General had given permission for the FBI to plant an electronic surveillance device, a bug, in civil rights leader Martin Luther King's New York hotel room. Despite what appeared to be his signature on the memorandum, Katzenbach was certain he never approved such a procedure, which he considered the worst possible invasion of privacy. The congressional investigation of the FBI during Mr. Hoover's lifetime, Katzenbach said, would have been utterly impossible. Mr. Hoover would have vigorously resisted. He would have asserted that the investigation was unnecessary, unwise, and politically motivated. At worst, he would have denounced the investigation as undermining law and order and inspired by communist ideology. No one in Congress risked that confrontation during his lifetime.
Said Katzenbach, absent strong and unequivocal proof of the greatest impropriety on the part of the director, no attorney general could have conceived that he could possibly win a fight with Mr. Hoover in the eyes of the public, the Congress, or the president. Moreover, to the extent proof of any such impropriety existed, it would almost by definition have been in the Bureau's possession and control, unreachable except with Bureau cooperation. Five years before Katzenbach made that public assertion, Davidin was planning to do something that had never been done before, obtain official FBI information that was otherwise unreachable. Davidin had given a lot of thought to the question before he asked it. What do you think of burglarizing an FBI office? If anyone else had asked that question of the nine people he approached, probably each of them would have swiftly ended the conversation. Because it was Davidin, they took it seriously and kept listening, despite being shocked. They trusted him. They knew he wasn't reckless, and they knew he believed in protest that was effective that could lead to results. Each of them respected him so much, they thought that if they were ever engaged in high-risk resistance, he was one of the few people they would want as a partner and leader when the stakes were high. So, they listened carefully. Some of them wrestled with the implication of his question for several days. Two said yes immediately. Only one of them, a philosophy professor, turned him down. Eight agreed with him that repugnant as burglary was as a method of resistance, it might be the only way to find documentary evidence that would answer important questions about the FBI that no journalist or government official responsible for the FBI had dared ask in the past or they concluded was likely to ask now or in the future. All of them were passionate opponents of the Vietnam War and passionate opponents of the suppression of dissent. David and the eight people who said yes in response to his question met as a group for the first time before Christmas 1970. Yes, 50 years ago this month, and chose their name, the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI. The name summed up their goal. In the absence of official oversight of this powerful law enforcement and intelligence agency, they, acting voluntarily in behalf of American citizens, would attempt to steal and make public FBI files in an effort to determine if the FBI was destroying dissent. They thought the name sounded dignified, like that of an official commission that should have been approved years earlier by a president, an attorney general, or Congress. Agreeing to break in only it could be done without violating their deep commitment to nonviolent resistance, they concentrated on developing the skills necessary to conduct an unarmed burglary of an office. Beginning in January 1971, most weekday evenings after they meticulously cased the area near the targeted FBI office for at least three hours, they drove to a Germantown neighborhood in northwestern Philadelphia to the home of John and Bonnie Rains, a young couple who had agreed to participate. There late at night, in the room in the back of the Rains' third-floor attic, they trained themselves as amateur burglars and planned the break-in. They discussed the discoveries they'd made during casing and how to work around serious obstacles they had determined could not be eliminated, such as the fact that security guards stood 24 hours a day behind the glass front door of the Delaware County Courthouse, constantly monitoring an area that included the nearby entrance to the building the burglars would enter, as well as the windows of the FBI office. Just a few days before the burglary, another critical problem developed over which they had no control. One of the burglars abandoned the group with the full knowledge of what they were going to do. He later threatened to turn them in. On the night of March 8, 1971, the eight burglars carried out their plan. 
Under the cover of darkness and the crackling sounds in nearly every home and bar of continuous news about the Muhammad Ali-Joe Frazier World Heavyweight Championship boxing match taking place that evening at New York's Madison Square Garden and being watched on television throughout the world, the burglars broke into the FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, a sleepy town southwest of Philadelphia. At first, their break-in plan failed. The locks were much more difficult to pick than expected. Frustrated, the newly minted locksmith in the group found a payphone, called the other burglars as they waited in a nearby motel room that served as the group's staging area, and told them the burglary might have to be called off. Michael German, a former FBI agent who conducted undercover FBI operations for 16 years before joining the staff of the ACLU, has often wondered how the media burglars knew what files to take. How do they know, for instance, he asked, where the political spying files would be? German said he'd always assumed, and has talked to other agents who made the same assumption, that because it had been impossible for an outsider to know where particular files were, the media burglary must have been an inside job carried out by a disgruntled FBI agent familiar with the files. But the burglars had found a foolproof solution to the problem of which files to take. They removed every file in the office. That's why as they drove away from media and their getaway cars late that night, they had no idea what they had stolen. For all they knew, they might have risked spending many years in prison for a trove of blank bureaucratic forms. Within hours of opening the suitcase they'd stuffed with FBI files, they knew their risk was not in vain. They found a document that would shock even hardened Washington observers when it became public two weeks later. The files stolen by the burglars that night in media revealed the truth and destroyed the myths about Hoover and the institution he had built since he'd become director in 1924. Contrary to the official propaganda that had been released continuously for decades by the FBI's Crime Records Division, the Bureau's purposely misnamed PR operation, Hoover had distorted the mission of one of the most powerful and most venerated institutions in the country. The media files revealed that there were two FBI's, the public FBI, America revered as their protector from crime, and the secret FBI. This FBI, known until the media burglary only to people inside the Bureau, usurped citizens' liberties, treated black citizens as if they were a dangerous society, and used deception, disinformation, and violence as tools to harass, damage, and most important, silence people whose political opinions the director opposed. Instead of being a paragon of law and order and integrity, Hoover's secret FBI was a lawless and unprincipled arm of the Bureau that, as Davidin had feared, suppressed the dissent of Americans. To the embarrassment and frustration of agents who privately opposed this interpretation of the Bureau's mission, agents and informers were required to be outlaws. Blackmail and burglary were favorite tools in the secret FBI. Agents and informants were ordered to spy on and create ongoing files on the private lives, including the sexual activities of the nation's highest officials and other powerful people. Electoral politics were manipulated to defeat candidates the director did not like. The FBI had assumed the duty to protect the public by placing it under surveillance. Anyway, I'm going to stop here. I hope that that excerpt from the first chapter has piqued your interest. I'll try to provide a more complete book report when I'm finished. And now we were privileged on this program to speak with a, a renegade FBI agent. That would be William Turner. I think we spoke with Bill Turner more than once on this show. He is certainly part of our archives. Bill Turner was a, uh, a tough investigator and a great writer. He is one of the very few people who, as a member of the FBI, went up against his boss, J. Edgar Hoover, and, uh, and managed to prevail. 
As I recall, Ms. McMillan, our interview with Bill Turner was something like the third or fourth uh, program we ever did on Radio Parallax. I know it was the only time we let somebody else conduct the interview, which we assisted with. In this case, that was our, our good friend uh, Jim DiEugenio. Bill Turner was a sharp enough guy to have figured out in like 1977 that the character known to history as Deep Throat was no doubt the number three man in the FBI, W. Mark Felt. We talked to Bill Turner about that in conjunction with our interviews with Senator George McGovern and Daniel Shore many years back. We got some pretty good stuff back there in our archives. If you didn't hear that on the first time or it's about time you hear it again, well, then, you know, have at it. It's there at radioparallax.com. I do want to take a minute also to thank people who have been contributing uh, to this program by sending us items in the past few weeks. I regret not taking an extra minute to write the names down, but you know who you are, and I would say thank you. At the end of the year, we'll try and, uh, you know, cite everybody by name. I think that would be a nice gesture, don't you, Ms. McMillan? We'd like to end this on a lighter note, so I, I would think I'd like to cite a book that I actually did give to Bill Turner. I also, on general principles, bought him a very high-quality bottle of scotch once, which I said, Bill, just for all you've done, and Bill's books are good, but the funniest book probably ever written about the FBI was by former agent Joseph Schott. It was titled No Left Turns, to quote from it. From the viewpoint of Mr. Hoover and his minions at what was called the seat of government in Washington, D.C., the FBI field was an area of disorder made up of field offices peopled by special agents in charge, SACs, assistant special agent in charge, ASACs, field supervisors, and lowly special agents on the bricks. Some with fingernails bitten down to the nubs, maintaining the field offices and resident agencies, constantly trying to create the illusion for the seat of government that everything was in order and being run according to the director's master plan. Of course, the director was not deceived. He knew there were weaklings and malingers out there flouting his rules and goofing off. Periodically, he sent forth raiding parties to attack field offices and tear them apart in search of heresy and disloyalty. He called these depredations office inspections. They resembled the cornfield scene in Planet of the Apes, when the apes come galloping through on their horses, lassoing all the humans. In the Bureau, the apes were called inspectors, or in Bureau vernacular, goons. What the field people knew, and Mr. Hoover apparently did not, was that following all the rules all the time would have meant self-destruction. Had all the nutty orders, rules, and instructions been carried out to the letter simultaneously, the organization would have collapsed from internal explosions like those funny cars the clowns used to drive at circuses. The game was to break or bend the rules without getting caught. Anyway, I think we'll call it a day. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Elliot Ness. Our regular programming will be still available at radioparallax.com. Signing off for KZFR, 90.1 FM, Chico. From the dusty mesa, her looming shadow grows, hidden in the branches of the poison creosote. Twines 